The voice of Motown, West Virginia's leader in news, analysis, and rumors, proudly presents the Voice of Motown podcast, featuring your boys, Brandon and Tyler. Take it away, gentlemen. Welcome to today's podcast, February 22nd, 2022. This is the Voice of Motown podcast. I'm Tyler Pepe. And I'm Brandon Cork, and this is a WVU sports podcast by two suffering WVU fans. All right, lots of topics to discuss today. WVU basketball, West Virginia recruits and transfers, the Jawan Howard incident, among many others, plus part four of our top 50 West Virginia football players of the 21st century. But before we get into all that, we want to remind all of you to follow our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Look for the Voice of Motown podcast. And that is the Voice of Motown podcast, a separate account from Brad's Voice of Motown account. So make sure you search for both the Voice of Motown podcast and the Voice of Motown and follow all the social media accounts that you can follow um, for those two accounts. And if you're feeling generous, feel free to click the link in the description and send us a few dollars. Absolutely. And lastly, look for Brandon's articles on the Voice of Motown's website and social media accounts. So, our first topic for the day, we are going to quickly recap the Kansas game. The Mountaineers lose 71-58 to to the Kansas Jayhawks. Nice closing to the first half. That made the score 33-27, to only a six-point deficit at halftime. But the Mountaineers were outscored by seven in the second half, which led to a 13-point defeat. Once again, it was just a terrible night of shooting for our Mountaineers, unfortunately. So what did you think of the game? It's just the, you know, the same thing that seems like it's been plaguing us for the past several games. Um, just no offensive consistency. Um, playing guys who were kind of limited in their skill set. We shot under 30% from the field. And once again, Sean McNeil and Taz Sherman are basically were basically the only sorts of uh sources of offense in that game, accounting for 34 of the 58 points which is 57% of all the points West Virginia scored. Um, we were also outscored in the paint, again, becoming a tradition now, 38-8. Um, to eight. eight points at the rim for WVU compared to 38 for Kansas. That's awful, and you can't win basketball games that way. And for all the hype that we heard from Huggins about, I'm not sure if I'm playing the right players. We need to get these young guys more minutes. Seth Wilson and Kobe Johnson combined for just seven minutes. So... Just the same thing over and over again because we're putting the same product out there over and over again. Yeah, I'm with you there. Um, you know, even Keity Johnson has been playing pretty well over the last several games. But, um, you know, I would like to just see these young guys getting in there more, especially Seth Wilson, who seems to answer the call every time he does hit the court. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not sure why these young guys aren't getting more playing time. Um, you know, that Kansas game, that might be historically bad at shooting from close range. I mean, it's amazing how poorly they shoot when they're close to the rim. I mean, that's normally most teams bread and butter when they're, they're cold from the outside. They just get a couple easy buckets close to the rim. And for whatever reason, it, this has been an issue all year for WVU and we've, we keep telling ourselves they'll eventually figure it out, but we're at the end of the year and they haven't. So I don't think it's going to click in these last few games. No, I mean, and I, I think 
you know, just the, the product that we're putting out there and kind of focusing so much on defense because we want to keep the game close um, just isn't helping the offensive flow of things. You know, there are times out there where we're having three guys on offense who are just zeros. They just can't do anything. You know, Keddie's kind of streaky. Um, so there's nights where he's really good offensively and there's other times where he just doesn't bring anything on the court. And those nights when you're, he's out there with, you know, Cottrell and Gabe, you only have two guys on the offense, potentially who's going to create offense. So, um, all that defense is kind of meaningless whenever the team's just going to rebound over your big guys anyway, for one and for two, none of the other players are going to contribute anything to the offensive end. And the defense is going to be able to kind of encircle two guys and force guys who aren't willing to shoot or can't shoot to make shots. Yeah, yeah, it was bad. WVU was four for, of 19 on layups that game. And, um, you know, it wasn't like they were just bad on the inside. They they shot 27% that game, and they only shot 26% on two-pointers. So it's not like a bunch of missed threes is what brought that percentage down. In fact, they shot higher from the three-point range, only 30%, but that was a higher percentage than what they shot uh, from from two-point range. That just blows my mind. And I read somewhere that this is the 16th worst shooting night for WVU since 1956, and three of those 16 worst shooting nights have happened over the last 11 games. Wow, that's that's bad. And that's one thing that, you know, I want to see some of the younger guys uh, out there too, is because especially Seth Wilson, he seems to be more aggressive and he has the size to kind of bang down low a little bit more, um, absorb contact. And, you know, he's playing a maximum of 13 minutes a night. He played 13 minutes a night again on TCU. And again, like I said, only like five minutes against Kansas. So I'm not sure what Huggins needs to see anymore to kind of give him some run because even with Curry, Curry, had a nice little run of, you know, scoring, you know, double digit games there for a while, but teams have figured him out again and he's been ineffective. So there's room there in the backcourt for someone new to step up and put some points on the board. Yeah. And coach Huggins made some comments after the TCU game in his press conference, um, saying that he is just going to ride with the guys who are giving him max effort. Um, But unfortunately we've kind of heard him say Things similar to that prior and uh it still seems like the same guys are getting the same minutes night in and night out um but but to kind of put a cap on the Kansas game Bridges only had nine shots versus Kansas and like I've said in previous podcasts I want him to have at least 15 shots a game but he's just simply not aggressive enough to do that which is disappointing because I think he's capable of scoring double digits easily every night um, right now on the year, he's only averaging nine points. But um, once again, I think I'm just giving up on the, <laughs> on that fact that he's just not going to be aggressive this year. Hopefully he comes out next year and feels like the leader because he kind of will be being a junior with all these guys leaving. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I just keep beating on the table saying it every week, but I think I'm just going to give up. It's not happening this year. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's safe to say. <laughs> yeah um i mean if you're trying to find a silver lining they showed a lot of heart in the kansas game they could have easily phoned it in when they were down 12 early in the second half um they even cut it to a one point game i think around the 12 minute mark in the second half so i 
I mean, it's not a lack of trying with these guys. They just can't hit a shot. The team is missing a stud player who can carry them when they need a bucket. Think of, uh, you know, Javon Carter was that guy. Deuce was that guy. When the whole team couldn't make a shot, they would keep you in a game. But this team just doesn't have anyone who can carry them against good competition. See, I think Taz can be that guy, but there's just not enough supporting cast around him. I think, you know, Taz offensively is as good or better than any of those guys um, with his offensive skill set. It's just that, you know, the defense can just focus solely in on him, put their best guy on him all the time because there's no one else that's a threat out there, especially with Sean um, being ice cold. I know he had a solid game against Kansas, but every other game he's been ice cold. He needs to find offense. And teams at this point kind of know that Bridges isn't going to shoot unless he's wide open or he's slashing to the rim and that anyone else who's out there just is really kind of a non-factor. I mean, I can't think of anyone else who who can provide a second source of offense on the team. I think what helped Carter out a lot was Daxter Miles had the most confidence of any WVU player who I've seen probably ever. He would shoot regardless if he missed 13 shots in a row. And we've seen times where he's missed 13 shots in a row and kept shooting. Um, you know, and there's always that threat of someone like that getting hot um, with um, – with Deuce, he had Culver to dump the ball down low. Put. So, you know, you had some sort of balancing off of that. Even Emmett Matthews at times, who played a lot like Jalen Bridges, where he wasn't really assertive, um, could provide offense at times, too. Um, and then, of course, Sean McNeil and Taz Sherman coming off the bench. Those were two guys who could score with Deuce on the court. Right now, it's just Taz, who's the only one who can create shots with his hand. And anytime anyone else has the ball in their hand, you know, there's really no question for the defense on who's going to try to create a shot. And the other thing that, you know, I've kind of, I don't think Huggins has done a lot of, and I'm not sure if it would work either, but, you know, playing Curry with Taz, um, at least when Curry was hot, um, just because then you have two ball handlers. Um, any other line on lineup, I can't think of anyone else who you would be afraid of being a, a playmaker who you would put out there. I mean, Kobe's not that. McNeil's not that um, even Seth, you know, maybe he is now, but back then it was hard to say if he was or not. So I think the problem is just not enough offensive talent and Huggins focusing way too much on the the defensive aspect of things coming into the, this season um, when it came to transfers. Yeah. And not that you want to make excuses for players, but um, Taz has, has been very unfortunate this season with COVID. I mean, I, I've talked to people who have had COVID who it hit them very hard. I've talked to other people who had COVID where, you know, it, it didn't really affect them that much. It clearly affected him. They bring it up on the podcast all or the, the broadcast all the time during the games. He lost 10 pounds. Yeah. So, I mean, COVID crushed him. And then once he started to kind of get his groove back, then he got the con- concussion. And now... And now it just now seems like he's starting to get his groove back from that. So he's just had a, a a lot of things not bounce his way during Big 12 play. Oh, yeah. And I mean, he's still like somehow, some way with all the adversity he's facing, able to put up some pretty solid games with that. I mean, um, the Iowa State game, he had what, like 17, eight rebounds, six assists, and then 23 points the other game. Um, so he's putting in some really, really great performances. It's just he's the only one doing it. Yeah, and you brought up Sean McNeil, um, you know, 
put up a donut against TCU. So let's just dive into that one. The Mountaineers lose 77 to 67 to TCU on Monday night. The Mountaineers had a good first half. It wasn't too bad, but, um, you know, they fall apart in the second half, as always, getting outscored by nine. So what are your thoughts on that game? See, I, I was more upset about the TCU game than I was the Kansas game because I felt like TCU was winnable. I mean, TCU, historically, while WVU's been in the Big 12, has been one of those teams that schedules cupcakes in the non-conference, beefs up their record, comes in the Big 12 play and falls apart. Um, now we're kind of showing up as that team. We beat up on a whole bunch of patsies, um, and now we're getting beat up by every Big 12 team. We haven't won a game on the road in Big 12 play this season. Um, and you know, we just got dominated everywhere in the second half. I mean, the first half, it looked like our offense was flowing, but our defense was atrocious. Um, and we just got dominated everywhere else. You know, Taz was the only player who shot more than 10 times. As you said, McNeil was a non-factor. Um, we were outscored in the paint again, or 40 to 24 out rebounded by 18. Um, And the interesting thing was kind of the philosophy, and I'm not sure if it was something TCU did, but in the first half, WVU had 12 assists on 17 made baskets, which was the highest rate of any game this season. But whenever it came into the second half, they had one assist on six makes on 23 shots. So that dropped their points per possession from 1.24 points per possession in the first half to 0.52 points per possession in the second half. And that lack of ball movement is just indicative of what WVU has been doing all year on the offensive end is not moving the ball and not enough players willing to take the shot when the ball hits their hands. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, they didn't play that great a defense in either half, but the, you know, the difference was our offense was, was pretty much clicking in the first half. I mean, we had a hot start from Bridges and Cottrell, which was very encouraging. They had 14 of WVU's first 21 points. Um, then the team went a little, a little cold, but then Taz put the team on his back, and I'm pretty sure he had all 10 points to finish that 10-0 run mm-hmm. to finish the first half. Um, we shot over 50% in the first mm-hmm. half, and the biggest thing was only two less points in the paint than TCU. So we didn't get crushed in the, point, in the paint in the first half. But... Then the second half comes along, and WVU shot 34% in the second half, only made one three-pointer, and got absolutely shellacked in the paint, 22 points to 12. Um, I don't know. They they just always seem to be a different team in the second half, and it's, it's just happened so much that now I expect it when I'm watching a game. Yeah, I think that's fair, and I, I wonder you know, if there's tinkering going on by Huggins, like saying, Hey, we're doing great in offense and keep focusing on that, but on defense focus on this, or, you know, stop doing this or that. I don't know if that's what's happening. Cause it just doesn't make sense. If you're having that much success playing good, fun, offensive basketball. And then the second half just comes around and it's gone. I mean, how does that happen? It, it doesn't really make any sense to me. Um, and Cottrell who, who played nice. I'm not sure what to, to think of him the last few games either. I know he didn't have a good game against Kansas, but you know, he looked good at times against TCU. He was moving the ball well. It looked like he was crashing the boards a little bit harder. He was passing the ball, making some shots. And he had that game two two games ago where he scored 13 points. Not terribly efficient, but he did score 13 points. Um, but again, his issue is rebounding. You know, he had no offense or no defensive rebounds, two offensive rebounds all game. 
And, you know, we're trying to figure out ways to get more offense on the court. But if you want him on the court, you need to put him with another big man who doesn't bring anything offensively. So it just adds another conundrum. So I would really like to see him get in the gym more and figure out how to rebound, because if he could figure out a rebound, I think he could play a lot more. But it's just really, really hard to have him out there whenever he can't grab a rebound at six foot 10, six foot 11, whatever he is. Yeah. And, and you know, maybe that injury prevented him from having a really good, you know, workout regimen during the off season and bulking up. Hopefully that's the issue because he did have one of his best overall games of the season. He shot 100% from the floor finished with nine points. And like you even said, he had some really nice passes out of the post. His teammates didn't finish it. So it doesn't really show up on the stat sheet, but um, you know, he could have had a, a good bit of assists. He, he, I don't know. Hopefully it's a sign of things to come from the red shirt freshman because he is just a red shirt freshman. He is still super young. Um, so, you know, if you're looking for good things, that was very encouraging. Yeah. So the one thing um, I like too is Polycat played well. Um, you know, normally I'm kind of critical of all the big men um, when they're playing, but Polycat, you know, he played 17 minutes. He had six rebounds um, while he was in the game. Um, and actually when he was in the game in the 17 minutes he played, WV was almost even with TCU on the rebounding battle. And that's, you know, remember WV got out rebounded by 18, but when he was in the game, the rebounding was 15 rebounds for WVU 16 for TCU, but whenever he wasn't in the game, um, TCU had a plus 15 rebound advantage without him on the court. So he was doing something on the boards. Now this may not be something that works every game. Um, as we kind of see that certain big men have certain ones of our big men succeed against other teams. And, um, curiously enough, Kerrigan, I don't think played at all against TCU, which I thought was interesting. Um, but, you know, Polycat played well, and, you know, he I think he actually had a couple of baskets, too. And he at most of the time, he seems to be the guy off who can make those little bunny hooks occasionally. Um, Kerrigan never really could. Cottrell prefers to play outside the paint. Um, so if there's any hope of someone being that big guy who has a little bit of post moves, I think Polycap is it. But still, um, I think it's a hot-cold thing with him as well, too, in a matchup thing. Yeah, he. I mean, he only shot one for three, which, you know, it doesn't sound terrible, but, um, you know, I remember those two misses, and they were very close to the bucket, and it was super frustrating to see that. Um, you know, Polycap, it is kind of a love-hate thing with him because he clearly tries. He clearly has a lot of passion. He's just a non-factor scoring, which just hurts this team so, so much. Um, yeah, on the, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think, you know, what hurts him is his size. I mean, he's maybe the same height as Gabe, but he's nowhere near as long and athletic. You know, I think he just has a really high motor. I mean, he's Huggins Cam Turman, except, you know, Cam Turman wasn't relied on to be a eight or nine rebound a night guy. So um, it was a different era then too. So, you know, maybe in another era it with or on another team in another role, huh. um, Cap would have been great. But now, you know, he's kind of, being relied on to do a little bit more than he's capable of. So I think it makes him look a little bit rougher than what he actually is. Yeah, 100%. I mean, he does come off the bench, but he he puts in starting minutes. But, I mean, he would be a great guy um, to be a backup to a Culver or someone. But, yeah, to rely on him full time, it's um, 
it's just not going well this season. Uh, on the plus side, um, Jamel King earned his first points of the season, hitting a three-pointer late in the game. And I already said it once, you know, although Keedy has been playing well lately, I'd like to see the young guys get increased minutes. King, Wilson, who played 13 minutes, which might sound good, but like I said, he's passing the test. I want to see that number higher. Oh, yeah. You know, I think Jamel King is a guy who just makes sense to see minutes right now. I mean, and it's something that we'll talk about a little bit later on, but we don't have any wing depth. Uh, you know, Emmett Matthews left and basically the gap between guys who are 6'4 and 6'8 and playing underneath the hoop, it's Jalen Bridges and that's it. The only guy who can play that, that in-between kind of forward minutes combo forward, if that's what you want to call him. And King, you know, even though he was kind of a late add to the team, he is a high quality player. You know, he's not a four or five star or anything like that, but he was brought in because he was supposed to be a sharpshooter. And, um, you know, I read on 24 seven tonight that it was actually been, you know, talked about by two separate sources to them that they actually, that um, they see King as a better, more stable version of Lamont West. And he's actually probably the best shooter on the team, but he's still not playing. Um, and Huggins actually made a comment on him um, after the game saying something along the lines of, you know, he may not have been great defensively, but he wasn't bad either. So maybe he's starting to turn the page a little bit on King. And we get to see a little bit more of him because at six foot seven, I mean, maybe he can luck his way into a couple rebounds, which is more than what some of our guards can say. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I saw those comments as well. And yeah, like we were saying, it sounds like Coach Huggins wants to start playing these young guys, but Again, he, he's kind of alluded to that a few times in the past, and it's not happening. So I guess I'll believe it when I see it. But that's, that's all I got for TCU. You got anything else? No, that was about it for me too. All right. So uh, we're going to quickly preview the next couple games. West Virginia has Iowa State this Wednesday and Texas this Saturday. Iowa State is riding a two-game winning streak after losing their previous four games. So they are a very streaky team and, you know, they want to cement their spot in the NCAA tournament. So they're definitely coming in playing for a lot. How do you like our odds versus the Cyclones? I'm pretty pessimistic coming into this one just because it's on the road and WVU has been terrible on the road. Um, Not just this year, but kind of overall since, since I think it was 2008, the stat I saw, I think they're eight for 25 since 2018. Um, on the road, which not good at all. Um, and in a year where we're just not doing well this year, obviously, and we're not doing well on the road, this just kind of adds up to be a loss. Now, I know when we played them a few weeks ago, we played them well. Um, it seemed like a really good favorable matchup for us because they are kind of driven by one guy and we were able to make his life a little bit difficult. But I feel like we're in such disarray right now that this isn't going to be a game that WVU is going to be able to pull off. Um, so that's kind of where I stand on Iowa State. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I think it's going to be a tough task. We we haven't played very well on the road. And like I keep saying, uh, they've fooled me enough times. Until I start seeing them playing better or winning, I'm just going to assume that you know a road game versus Iowa State is probably not going to go well. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So meanwhile, Texas has TCU on Wednesday and they are currently fourth in the big 12 with 19 wins. They are also trying to earn a decent seating in the NCAA tournament. The Mountaineers will be at home, but uh, this is going to be a tough game for West Virginia, isn't it? 
I think so. I mean, the one kind of saving grace for me is, well, there's two. Um, one, we're at home. We play better at home. So hopefully that means something good could happen. And two, when we played Texas the first time, we didn't have Taz or Gabe or Kobe Johnson, who doesn't really play anyway. So that's kind of a non-factor. But Texas hasn't seen Taz or Gabe. Um, and I feel like this is, you know, something where someone can get hot at home, especially someone like Taz. Gabe, who has been in foul trouble the past couple games, maybe gets a little bit more of a favorable whistle these next couple games and gets some more minutes. Um, and he's always, you know, playing with energy and passion. And you get the crowd into things. Anything could happen. Now, I still think there's like a 65% chance Texas wins. But I actually think this game's more likely for WVU to win than Iowa State. Yeah, I'm 100% with you. Uh, the game's at home. It's on Saturday, which always has a bigger feel to it than a weekday game. So out of the two, I would say, um, you know, I like our odds better against Texas as well. So I'm with you. Yeah, and it's going to be a fun watch. I mean, anytime Texas comes into town, fans come in. Um, and, you know, the biggest question for me is, you know, with the way the play's been, team's been playing, even if we do get off to a good start, is the team morale at a point where even like getting up to an early 10 point lead or something early in the first half, is that enough to kind of raise the morale enough to finish off the game? Um, Cause it just seems like we're in the gutter. Yeah, for sure. And that's the thing. And Huggins keeps mentioning it in press conferences. I mean, we're not done yet. I mean, if we do go on a run, we can make the tournament. There's just, you know, Obviously, like you're saying, morale's kind of down, and it is with the fan base, too. It's hard to find um, a lot of positives or to find a road where we could do that. But, you know, the Mountaineers still could. So definitely watch and definitely be rooting for them. So that leads us to our next topic. Will WVU finish with a winning record? So West Virginia has Iowa State, Texas, Oklahoma, and TCU left. They are currently 14 and 13. So the question is, do they finish with a winning record? What do you think? I think it's possible. And I know it's terrible to say that it's possible we could finish 500, which is bad. But, you know, looking at it, even if I chalk up Iowa State and Texas's losses, that would put us at 14 and 15. I do think we can beat TCU at home. Um, so that put us at 1500 exactly. Um it comes down to Oklahoma at Oklahoma. Now, Oklahoma isn't doing so hot. Um, they're kind of in a similar situation with us where they've been getting beat up quite a bit um, among the bottom tier teams in the Big 12. But it's at Oklahoma. So, you know, we would have to get our first road win there, assuming we lose to Iowa State. And, you know, that's that's tough. Um, so we could, but it's really going to come down to that Oklahoma game, I think. Yeah, yeah, I could definitely see that. I mean, they have to go at least two and two to accomplish, um, you know, finishing with a winning record. It's certainly possible, but, um, you know, I, I just have to start being honest with myself. This team hasn't shown me any reasons to think they can win two more games. Like I said, it's possible, but West Virginia has lost 11 of their last 12 games. I just don't see them turning the ship around all of a sudden. I hope they do, um, but every week I think they're going to get it together, and every game it's the same story. Strong first half, they they keep it close, and then they get shellacked in the second half. It happens every darn game. So, um, 
you know, they have to show me something different for me to start believing that it'll happen. But um, yeah, I'm hoping. And that's kind of what I'm hoping, you know, injecting some use at the youth into this team, getting some of these young guys who haven't been seeing minutes yet. I mean, they've had almost a whole season of practice by now. Um, maybe those are the guys that will come in and play with the energy that we need to win. Um, obviously, if they're ever matched and we lose, we're losing anyway. So that's even more incentive to get the young guys in. So I've liked what I've seen from Wilson. I think Kobe Johnson has a ton of potential. He needs some more confidence. Um, and Jamal King just haven't seen enough of him. But knowing that he's a shooter um, makes me really interested. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I think they could, you know, inject some energy into this team. And they, they have a lot of hunger and fight because they want to kind of cement their role on this team for next season. And that's not to say these seniors aren't playing their hardest. But, I mean, you know how it is. The young dog's always the hungriest one. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I 100% agree with you. If you just trickle in some younger guys to play with some of those veterans, maybe it lifts up the entire team. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, creates a little bit of a competition, too, which that always brings out the best of people. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, this kind of leads into our next topic. We wanted to discuss some of the key players who were on last year's team and left for various reasons. And the three guys we're really going to focus on is Jordan McCabe, Emmett Matthews, and Derek Culver, and how their roles could have, you know, affected the season differently for the Mountaineers. Um So we'll start off with Jordan McCabe. McCabe, you know, he took a lot of heat from the WVU fans while he was here, particularly one of our friends loved um, getting on him. And I understand why, you know, he seemed undersized for the Big 12. He was he was always a player I rooted for a lot. He had big hype coming into Morgantown, but the the proof was on the film. He never really, you know, adapted to the Big 12 play. However, he might have been helpful this season because the big knock on this West Virginia team is they are lacking a true point guard. And Jordan McCabe is definitely a true point guard in the fact that, you know, he had good ball handling skills. He was a decent passer. The knock would have been that his defense might have hurt us this year and his lack of scoring would have been an issue this season. Um but, you know, he might have helped. Regardless, I'm happy for him, though. He seems to be playing well for UNLV. Yeah, definitely. And just for transparency, Jordan McCabe is actually the one who kind of uh, inspired this topic here uh, because I saw a Facebook ad of him for um, some sort of orthodontics company and got us talking about McCabe, which then led to what his current role would be on this team, which expanded to the rest of these folks. So um, Jordan McCabe has a lasting legacy, at least for now, as an advertising superstar. Um, (laughs) But, you know, like you said, he's doing pretty solid at um, UNLV. Um, So he's averaging 7.1 points per game um, on 37% field goal percentage. Again, nothing that's earth moving. But, you know, what really kind of stood out to me is that he – is dishing out almost five assists per game. And he's shooting 34% from three, which is 13% higher than what he shot at WVU. Um, You know, and I think he would really help because he's a good ball handler and he's someone who whenever WVU was in um, and needed more of a structured offense, he was the guy that they would bring in and he could run the offense, make sure people were getting in the right place um, and actually do something that was a little more cohesive than what WVU kind of runs now. 
Um, and WV doesn't have someone to bring in right now to be that coach on the floor to run the offense, get people in position. Um, you know, and I, I don't see him as someone who would come in if he was still on this team as a full-time starter. I still think he would probably share minutes with, you know, Ketty or whoever else would be in the point guard rotation. But I do think, you know, whenever you need the offense settled down, I mean, imagine Taz Sherman running off screens or Sean McNeil running off screens with McCabe passing it to him over Ketty or Kobe or anyone else right now that just isn't working. I think it gives your offense a little bit more of a, a twist, a little bit more of an identity and um, a little bit more flexibility on what it can do. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think he could have helped our team out this year. Um, but uh, a little selfishly, I'm kind of happy he's not here. And I hope this isn't a knock on Jordan McCabe, but I feel like, you know, the lesser competition is good for him because if you ask me, the big 12 is probably the best basketball conference in the entire NCAA. And, um, you know, you could tell he just clearly struggled against those tall, athletic, quick guys. So it, it probably worked out best for him that he went to a school where he could put up the numbers you were just mentioning. Oh, for sure. I, I do think, and kind of going to lead into Matthews with this, that off- that Huggins' offense, too, kind of hurts people's shooting percentages. That's my conspiracy theory for the night. So like I said, McCabe's three-point shooting percentage increased by 13%. Well, Emmett Matthews, while on Washington, who's seeing a much bigger role in the way he did at WVU, his three-point percentage actually increased 5% from last year from just under 30% to just about 35% from three this year. And Matthews is doing pretty solid, Um, 11 points per game, almost five rebounds per game, 42% from the field, like I said, 35% from three. And, you know, he's kind of that missing link right now that, you know, I think would fit perfectly on this team because, like we mentioned earlier in the podcast there's kind of a dichotomy of you know guard size players and big size players and we don't have any of those in between size players like bridges is um and king could be but he's so young matthews would kind of fill out that perfectly and i could see him being someone also being used to play that small ball five position which they used him in a little bit last year when culver was in foul trouble and gabe was in foul trouble um, and with his three-point shooting ability, being able to someone to create a little bit more space on the floor for our shooters. Yeah, yeah, I liked Emmett Matthews. He was a good stretch forward when um, he was at WVU. He wasn't spectacular, but he was a good scoring threat, and his length is something, you know, every coach wants. So just speculating, you know, my guess is the emergence of Jalen Bridges has something to do with Emmett transferring out. I'm sure there was a lot of, factors that went into it um but i'm sure he knew he would be fighting for minutes with Jalen and gabe so you know it would have been nice to have an extra scorer on the the team this year though um i understand why he left but uh you know once again he's playing well in washington like you just said i was looking at his numbers they looked kind of similar to when he was at wvu last year the points per game was up um but, you know, like rebounds, assists, everything like that was pretty similar. And we were definitely missing um, someone to fill that role. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, he could have gotten similar minutes to what he had last year, maybe even more. You know, he could have been a 30 minute a night player if, you know, he proved he could be more effective in that forward role than playing Kerrigan or Polycap or even Cottrell at times. Because right now, like, you know, I've said that a couple of podcasts ago, those three are combined for about 40 minutes a night. So, you know, you give some more of those minutes to 
to Gabe. Um, you give some to Matthews and, you know, those, both those guys are probably close to 30 minutes a night. Cause Bridges is already, is already playing probably 30 to 35 minutes a night. So you, you really can't give him any more minutes, but um, you know, I, I think the opportunity was there, but I can understand why I transferred too, because there's just a lot of question marks and obviously with Bridges getting better, um, Gabe kind of being that defensive role player, um, you know, and having the opportunity to go to a team that's closer to home. Cause he is from Tacoma, Washington. Um, mm-hmm. so he is close to home now, um, and get a bigger role on the team it is good. So, you know, again, I, I d- didn't hold anything against them then don't hold anything against them now, but he would just be a joy to have on this team. I think. Yeah. 100%. We, we definitely would have used him. But, um, you know, of course, Deuce McBride went to the NBA. And so the the biggest guy that we're missing this year is Derek Culver. He would have been the real difference maker. If he was on this team, I think West Virginia has four to five extra wins this season easily. He was such a force on the glass. And although his scoring was low at times last year, there were also times when he absolutely dominated around the hoop. It would have been nice to have, you know, his inside scoring presence this season. And I I think it would have tilted quite a few games in our favor during conference play. So I'll guarantee you this WVU wouldn't be dead last in the Big 12 with Culver on this roster. Oh, for sure. I mean, he would be the best rebounder on the team, hands down, easily. Um, you know, and assuming he could stay out of foul trouble, he would have as many minutes as he wanted to play in that center position. Um, I, I just don't think anyone else that that we're playing there can match up with what he is capable of. And, you know, like you said, even offensively, while he wasn't super consistent, um, he would get to the free throw line. He would get other teams in foul trouble. He would put forth an effort. And I think, you know, he, it was just someone a little bit more reliable around the rim who, you know, you felt good about him taking shots most of the time as opposed to the guys we have now. Um and, and, you know, the frustrating thing, too, is that, you know, he did sign with uh, the Fort Wayne G League team in November, but he actually got released from there. So he's actually I don't know if he's playing basketball anywhere right now. Um, and we talked about it before where, you know, uh, well, we kind of feel like, you know, he may have been taken advantage of by the agent, um, which is kind of the rumors that swirled around during the time. And, you know, I think Culver, you know, would have made 100 percent to come back because when we interviewed him before his love for Bob Huggins his love for the university. Um, you know, I think he would have came back. Could he have? Um, so that's what I think makes us hurt even worse. Yeah. 100% because we want him here and it's, you know, in the interview that we did with him, it sounded like he still wanted to be here. So it does stink because, you know, we would be a completely different team with him on this roster. So it's never good when you're getting to the end of the season and you're playing. What if, <laughs> but um, <laughs> Sometimes it's fun to talk about. Yeah, we're uh, WVU fans are that, you know, one half of the couple that's on one side of the Berlin Wall and then Culver's the, on the other side. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> All right. Um, our next topic, last Friday, Bob Huggins was one of the 11 finalists named for the Basketball Hall of Fame. The topic of Coach Huggins not being in the Hall of Fame has been discussed at nauseum throughout this basketball season, even on this very podcast. Um, in every game, it seems like it's brought up. But, you know, that's a good thing because I do believe it has shined enough light on this ab- absurd exclusion. I mean, everyone agrees he should be in. 
And I think he will finally get elected this year. What do you think? I think so. The one thing I was confused about, um, well, not confused, uh, that I couldn't find information on is, is this the first time he's made it as a finalist? That's a good question. I, I didn't I didn't dive into that. Yeah, I did some searching. I, I couldn't find anything. But, you know, if this is his first time even making it this far, it's even a bigger travesty because, you know, it seems I think every year they do six players, four coaches and one referee. Or maybe it's that's just the numbers they have for this year. But, um, you know, th- that's a pretty big group. And for the amount of coach, great coaches that are there are out there, I mean, there's only so many and Huggins to get passed over for that many years is just absolutely absurd. I mean, he should have been in probably five or six years ago for being honest. Um, but I did do some reading on what he needs to get in. So he will need to get 18 of 24 votes from the honors committee for election into the name is Naismith Memorial basketball hall of fame. Now I'm not sure who's on those honors committee, so he can't write them strongly worded messages. Should he not get in? But, um, you know, if we have to, I'll do some researching and find those names and send it out to Mountaineer Nation so we can get them in next year. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. No death threats, though. They're not WVU players, so we cannot treat them like crap. <laughs> the threat has been made. All right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know how they can keep him out much longer. He's fourth on the all-time wins list, and he will easily be third by the time he retires. He's one of two coaches to win 300 games at two different schools, Cincinnati and WVU. The only other coach to do that is Roy Williams at Kansas and North Carolina. Bob Huggins has two Final Four appearances. The only knock they have on him is he hasn't won a national championship. Um, But, you know, I didn't really do any digging, but I can almost guarantee there are coaches in the Basketball Hall of Fame who didn't win a championship, so that argument doesn't hold much weight to me. Put the man in. He deserves it. And plus, Huggins is always taking kind of the road less traveled, too. I mean, he could have went to so many bigger schools and, you know, had opportunities there. He could have went to the NBA at one point and chose not to. Um, you know, Coach K and Roy Williams and all these other people kind of went to bigger, you know, more prestigious institutions and built them up. Huggins has kind of bounced around between smaller schools, partially, you know, because of his lifestyle, but, you know, other times just because that's what he prefers. He likes that kind of more blue collar, you know, make it work kind of situation as opposed to going out there and competing with the blue bloods of the world, which I can understand is a complete headache. Um, So I, that makes me respect him even more with the schools that he got all of those wins at. Oh, 100%. And that's why we love him because he just, he does have that blue collar attitude and he brings it to his team. And that's why, you know, the state of West Virginia just loves him so much. Um, But yeah, that's all I got on that. There's not much more to say. He deserves it. Put him in. Yep. Agree 100%. All right. Um, We got some more basketball for you. West Virginia's basketball team landed a Juco commitment a few days ago. Is it, uh, Fede Federico, is that how you say it? That's what I'm going to say. So (laughs) sounds good to me. He's uh, He is well-traveled. I would like to see a copy of his passport because he was born in Cairo, Egypt, raised part of his life in South Sudan, also lived in Finland for a little bit, and then played high school basketball in Washington, Pennsylvania. Now he's playing basketball in Northern Oklahoma Junior College. So he has been everywhere, man. 
I didn't know he played at uh, in Washington, PA. Yeah, I didn't know that until um, I read about him a little bit uh, earlier on. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's not too far from us. Um, yeah, but Federico, he'll have three years of eligibility left. And he's a big kid. He's six foot 11, 210 pounds. So, um, yeah, he is a Juco. We'll see how it works out. But, um, you know, it's definitely exciting to see those measurables. He He's averaging 11 points per game, eight rebounds per game, almost two blocks per game. So um, he could definitely be a big factor next year because other than Cottrell, we're going to have a big void to fill at the big man position. Yeah, I'm hoping that he has something to bring offensively. Um, now, Huggins does have a pretty good track record with these, you know, African-born players. You know, you think um, Oscar, Kanate, guys like that. I know Njai didn't hang around very long, but I'm hoping that Fede is a little bit more polished than what um, Njai was. Um, so that, you know, maybe he can come in and play because we do need – you know, a skilled big man. I know a Konkwu, um, who actually isn't from Africa. I believe he's actually from England, interestingly enough. Um, you know, is going to play some minutes next year. But, you know, we do need more big men with so many of our big men leaving after this year. Um, he does. He did have some looks from other colleges, um, even though he really, you know, if you go on 24-7 and sites like that, he didn't have a recruiting ranking, but he was getting recruited by some bigger colleges um he had offers from oklahoma state st john's and then on a smaller scale louisiana monroe bryant and bradley yeah so we'll see what he can do next year um ready to move on let's do it all right yeah i don't know if you guys read an article but i caught this news straight from the sources on Twitter when it was breaking over the weekend. So Bob Huggins had his fish fry this weekend. And if you aren't familiar with the fish fry, Bob Huggins holds it annually to raise money for cancer in memory of his mother. And in attendance was the owner of Barstool Sports, Dave Portney. After the event, Coach Huggins tweeted out the suggestion that the Coliseum should be renamed the Barstool Sports Coliseum. Some would argue bringing in Dave Portney and Barstool Sports as a sponsor would probably generate more interest from the younger generation. If that's true, then I'm all about it. You know, we we have to start getting creative and thinking outside the box with these new NILs and the transfer rules. So if this could help WVU, then why not? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think this would be a great opportunity, especially for NIL stuff, because, you know, you look at... um. You know, they also own separately their own kind of gambling website. So they have a lot of money. Um, they also have Deion Sanders as one of their staff while he's still coaching Jackson State. And Jackson State just landed a big five-star cornerback recruit over this past off uh, offseason over some really big names. And they're not even a FBS school. So, you know, the Barstool name kind of carries some weight. And you know, they're very good at marketing. You know, they're, they find a way of getting their message out there. Sometimes they're very hot takey. Um, they're much more of a sport culture, a pop culture kind of site more than a sports news site, but you know, they make money doing it. And, you know, Portnoy is very smart about it. You know, he did, um, donate $500,000 at the fish fry. And I think Huggins seeing that money that he's willing to throw around made him think that, Hey, you know, maybe we can get him to pitch some more money in around here. And hopefully that money would go not to just facility upgrades, but also, you know, paying our players some NIL money. 
Yeah, for sure. And I love seeing that Coach Huggins is being so active about it. Um, you know, whether you like Barstool Sports or not, because it's kind of a love-hate um, media outlet. Um, and, and I'm not even always the biggest fan of some of the stuff they put out. Sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't. But um, like I said, if it's helping West Virginia, then then who cares? If it can pay kids, if it can bring more kids in, that's just the game now. So um, who knows? I mean, this might not go anywhere. It might take off, but it is an interesting topic to bring up. It also builds, I think, a connection between Portnoy and Barstool, uh, Barstool and West Virginia. I mean, I think of, you know, Mike Pushkar. I know he was born and you know he lived in morgantown he went to more he went to wvu and things like that so that relationship was a little bit more you know born into him um but you know he named the stadium and he was so invested on making sure the program was top notch before he passed i mean he left so much money after he passed to the mount the university that's how much he cared about it um you you think you put your name on something or the name of your company on something um when it's something like a barstool which is kind of privately owned it's not some fortune 500 conglomerate who is faceless um barstool has a face so you know you get to see maybe portnoy in town a little bit more you get to see you know more focus on west virginia at barstool um it brings a lot of good side effects outside of the money because there's more invested in making the arena successful when that means making the team successful so i think there's a lot of residuals that you know could potentially happen that maybe people who um aren't a fan of naming something after Barstool, which again, you know, I, I'm kind of on the same page as Tyler where I'm not a super big fan of them, but I'm willing to sacrifice that if it means uplifting West Virginia, we need every advantage that we can get in today's NCAA environment. Yeah, 100%. And you make a good point. You know, if the name's on there, we might get more visits from, you know, Courtney and other guys, which will bring media attention. And let's face it. I mean, that's what's going to bring in this younger generation. You know, if you can get eyeballs, that's never a bad thing, right? 100% agree. All right. Our next topic for those who missed it. After the Michigan versus Wisconsin game on Sunday, there was an incident between head coaches Jawan Howard and Greg Gard. Here's how the situation unfolded. Wisconsin was up by 17 and had their backups in. Coach Howard was pressing Wisconsin with 15 seconds left, and Coach Gard called a timeout to he said, to help his backups beat the press, which is kind of understandable. Apparently, Jawan Howard was not happy with the timeout, so he decides to not lead his team in the handshake line, and he also decides to not shake Coach Guard's hand. Howard says, I'll remember that in the handshake line, so Coach Guard grabbed Coach Howard's arm to discuss his reasoning for the timeout. These are all their explanations. And Howard repeatedly said, don't touch me. Another 20 seconds or so goes by and Howard takes a swing at an assistant coach on Wisconsin's team, not even the head coach. And, uh, you know, it sounds like a situation that could have been handled better by, you know, the so-called adults in the room. So what are your thoughts on the incident? Um, I, you know, I think that Howard was hundred percent in the wrong, you know, I don't think what guard did was necessarily wrong because you always see coaches kind of, you know, do that kind of like side hip grab and talking to each other in ears real quiet. Um, you know, even kind of if things went bad or not, you know, if, if even in football games, when that happens, if someone's not happy, they'll, you know, 
let them talk in their ear for two seconds and then pull away and walk their own way to the locker room. But Howard just kind of is just very immature. I mean, he very childish what he did. You like, you can't escalate like that. You're not setting a good example. I was disappointed that he only got suspended five games. You know, I think it should have at least been the rest of the season. Um, You know, I understand he's a good coach and Michigan is probably happy to have him and they want him, but it kind of has to make you also kind of question what type of leader he is because, you know, I, I think what guard did, I know the timeout seemed unnecessary, but if he's doing that, the coaches kids up, that's his whole job. You know, if he's going out there and looking at his future at the end of the, you know, on the court struggling, calling a timeout and saying, Hey, this is a learning opportunity. This is what you need to do. Um, and explaining it that way to Howard, if he was willing to listen, you know, that's logical, you know, just say, Hey man, no offense, but I wanted to help my kids out. Um, I think that would have been fine to 95% of people in the world, but Juwan Howard's just one of those 5% who just can't handle it. Yeah, uh, I'm with you. Yeah, you know, I think there's no excuse for Juwan Howard's actions and no one should be making excuses for him, which, you know, just from what I saw on social media, it seems like a lot of people are. Um, I don't care what was said or if a timeout was called. Howard deserved to be punished by the NCAA. So anyone who's trying to claim he shouldn't have been suspended, is that's just ridiculous. Um, Howard was pressing and guard called a timeout to make sure his backups knew how to break the, the press. If, if Howard didn't want Wisconsin to call that timeout, then he shouldn't have been pressing is kind of the way I see it. And, um, you know, I know it's kind of taboo to do either one. Personally, I have no problem. If someone wants to press all the way up until the end of the game, I'm fine with that. That, that You're getting more reps. If you want to call a timeout and beat that press, especially with guys who don't get a lot of playing time, I'm fine with that. I mean, I don't understand why there's hurt feelings either way there. Um, But if Howard didn't want a confrontation in the handshake line, then he should have A, just shook hands, or B, don't shake hands, but keep your mouth shut while you're in the line then. You know, in my opinion, every time the situation slowly escalated, Howard was the kindling that started the fire. You know, his press led to the timeout. His pouting in the handshake line led to the scuffle. You know, grow up or shut up would be my advice for Howard. You're too old to be acting like this. You're supposed to be showing young adults how to behave in the real world. And, you know, if you're a parent and you see that, would you want that person guiding your child? That's, you know, it's not good for Howard, but it's also not good for Michigan. So he definitely has to take a step back and reflect on this incident. And the biggest thing for me is if this was the first incident, um, you know, people could probably say, well, you know, he, he lost his cool. We all do it sometimes. But if you remember correctly, he had a similar episode less than a year ago against Maryland. So repeat offender in less than a year. He definitely deserves a suspension. Oh, for sure. And more than five games, too. Um, and the thing, too, is, is that, you know, there's nothing I don't think that is forcing him to even walk you through the handshake line if he didn't want to talk to anyone at all. He could have just went to the locker room, let his team shake hands. Um, his assistant coaches are still there. They could, you know, guide the team. He could go pout in the locker room, cool off and, you know, do something that's a little bit more logical and reasonable. Um, so I'm not sure, you know, even if it would have garnered some media attention, that stuff blows over pretty quick. I mean, you think of Stanley cup playoffs where people skate off the ice after being eliminated, Tom Brady walking off the field without shaking hands after being eliminated. People still mention that, you know, and then, but that blows over really quick. 
punching someone in the face doesn't blow over pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I 100% agree with you. It, it could have been handled a lot of different ways. Um, as far as the five games, I can live with it, but personally, if it was up to me, I probably would have made it the rest of the season. Just, you know, he's done until next year, no matter how far they get in whatever tournament they end up in. Um, and for what I just said, because he's a repeat offender, I think it sends a bad message to any coach or player who wants to do something similar. You know, um, if you're angry and you want to hit someone, you might be thinking in the back of your head, well, what's, what's five games? That's what happened to the last guy who did it. So that's worth it to me. Whereas if you would have just said you're done for the year, the season's almost over then, um, you know, that would be in the back of the head of coaches and players who, who might get angry down the road. Definitely. Yeah, so, I don't know. That's our opinion on it. New football transfers. We're going to talk about this very quickly. WVU has a few new ones. Charles Finley, the tight end who played behind Michael Laughlin and TJ Banks this past season. Junior Tavis Lee, who saw very limited time on the defensive line, but the big name was Daryl Porter Jr. Porter was an absolute stud this past season and only his sophomore season. He only had one interception and five pass deflections, but I think he did a nice job of limiting the damage on his side of the field. So what are your thoughts on all three of them? Yeah, I think, you know, the Finley transfer isn't that bad. We have a lot of tight ends coming in, so I can understand why he's leaving. Um, he, he was kind of a project, too. I think he was like 6'5", like 215, which is really light for a tight end, um, which kind of limits kind of getting a role in the offense as it currently stands because we do like blocking tight ends, and it's hard to block when you're only 215 pounds. Um, Tavis Lee, again, another guy I understand. This is the type of guy that the portal's built for, an upperclassman, who's looking for some place to play. Um, he is from Martinsburg, West Virginia. So it does kind of suck to lose an in-state kid, but we just have so much talent on the defensive line. Um, it makes sense for him to transfer if he wants to play. And, you know, it's not even guaranteed that he transfers out of the state. He could go to Marshall. He could go to someplace like Shepard or Fairmont state um, stepping down a level. Um, so still might have a chance to root for him in state. Um, but like you said, Daryl Porter jr. Huge loss because, you know, number one, he's so young and he played so well. Um, he started all 13 games, um, 40 tackles, one pick, four pass breakups, played 716 snaps. Um, pretty decent grade by PFF2, almost a 72 overall, which is generally graded as a pretty good grade. And, you know, he was someone who I felt like we could rely on and someone that could develop into a really, really good lockdown corner for us. Um you know, in the next couple of years. And I think this is a product of the transfer portal and kind of the NCAA's lack of policing it. Um, so there was a rumor that that leaked on 24 um, seven, which, you know, I sent to our, our group chat that we talk about WVU sports in that said that Florida state has been in Daryl Porter jr's ear since the end of the season. And curiously enough, uh, Daryl Porter jr's top four includes Miami, Oregon, LSU and oh, Florida State. Um, there's also the connection in Miami with Porter's former coach, Jamila Dye, um, who, you know, curiously enough, um, recruited um, Tyke Smith to Georgia after he decided to transfer from West Virginia. So there is kind of a connection with the former defensive back coach and 
his former players there, which makes sense because there is a relationship there. But, you know, if the Florida State thing is true, it's kind of the big problem with the transfer portal. You know, you you talk about um, the transfer portal being the ease of access for players to make decisions that are better for themselves. But if it's not being policed as such, if it's being policed as, okay, well, we can just let players enter whenever they want and go wherever they want whenever, um, then that leaves the door open for things like this, allegedly, where teams are kind of getting in people's ear and encouraging them to transfer for greener pastures, more exposure, more NIL money if, while the player's still on another team. Um, in professional sports leagues, this is known as tampering, and it is highly illegal, and it is highly fined if people find it, find out about it. You know, for example, there are teams who lose first-round draft picks for tampering. There are teams who, um, you know, I think it was the Minnesota Timberwolves in maybe 03. I forget the name of the guy they, they signed, but there was tampering involved in it, and the NBA stripped them of three consecutive first-round draft picks. That's how severe tampering is. And yet the NCAA kind of just kind of lets the transfer portal be. Now, I think I, I disagree with Tyler on, on this point where I do think the transfer portal is a good thing. I do think players need it. But I do think the NCAA needs to really kind of figure out a way outside of self-reporting to enforce and police it because it could get out of control really, really quickly. Yeah, 100%. And uh, no, I think we're on the same page. I don't have any problem with the transfer portal. (laughs) Um, But, uh, uh, you know, it's definitely been hurting WVU a lot. But I I think if it's used correctly, it is great. I mean, if you're not getting playing time, most kids aren't going to go play pro somewhere. You got four years to soak up a college career. So, I mean, like we just talked about with Lee, if you're not playing, yeah transfer out the problem is it's not being policed and i saw the ncaa um is meeting to start discussing this stuff but my question is how did they not see something like this coming from a mile away why was there not already rules in place um it it just kind of sounds like the wild west or like a bunch of guys at the top who who clearly don't have a vision of the future i i would think everyone saw this coming from a mile away Coaches kind of did this before the transfer portal became wide open. Um, So how did you not see this coming would be my question. Yeah. And the portal has been around for three years now. There's no reason, you know, there were transfers before that, but the portal didn't exist. You would think that the ideation behind the portal would be to implement some of these policing mechanisms before you kind of opened it up and to do it three years later, you're already behind. Like you're already allowing people to, formulate strategies and go incognito to figure out how to get bypass all these potential sanctions and things like that. And, and, you know, I think because the NCAA is so far behind, one thing they need to do is if they do find um, violations of it, I think they need to go full SMU on a, on a school and just strip them, knock them down a division, make them lose their money. And I think you make an example out of one school, regardless of who it is. Um, it'll change the way people approach it. Um, Now, part of that feeling is because I'm extremely salty about losing so many quality (laughs) players to the portal, um, especially to schools in Florida. But, you know, there is a connection there, I think, too, where schools are talking to players, you know, whether directly or indirectly, because people are also talking about how college football coaches can get through to players 
via other means. So talking to their high school coach and saying, hey, tell Daryl I like the way he played today. I'd like to see him down in Florida. That can technically probably not be considered tampering, but in some way, shape, or form, that should be considered too. So there needs to be a mechanism in place where you're monitoring that coach's communications through their cell phone and emails and things like that. And making sure things like that don't happen because it's really going to destroy the middle class of college football. You know, the West Virginia's, the um, Kansas States, yeah, anything like that. Sadly, stuff like that has been happening for the past decade with in the NCAA, which stinks because you know it's it's such a a fun sport to watch, and you know all this stuff is just really watering it down it seems like um i would say a hefty fine and loss of several scholarships would be you know the bare minimum at least you know they, they need to do something they need to do it fast because uh they need to get it under control definitely all right so um moving on some sad news to report west virginia quarterback commit raheem Dieter was shot on friday in what his mother is calling a road rage incident jeter was shot in his left leg and the injury will require surgery to remove the bullet i'm not positive what the exact date will be for you know his surgeries but um we obviously wish the young man nothing but the best. Hopefully he can make a full recovery, not just for his athletic future, but just for his day-to-day health. Um, it's hard to find the exact details about the incident. I'm sure more will be released as the investigation goes further, but regardless, very, very sad news. Yeah. Very sad. And, you know, like you said, I hope he gets well soon. Um, you know, and it's just scary that, People are shooting people just because of road rage. I mean, that's just nuts to me. So um, a person shouldn't have to be afraid when they're driving their car down the road. And, you know, I hope that Jeter comes out okay. Um, I hope he's able still to still play the sport that he loves. And, um, you know, we still see him see him here in a Mountaineer jersey next year. Yeah, 100%. All right, next we have rankings 35 to 31 for the top 50 football players at West Virginia of the 21st century. Coming in at number 35, Darius Stills. Darius played at WVU from 2017 to 2020. Um, Just so there's no confusion, Darius is the older Stills brother who is currently playing in the NFL he was a consensus All-American, Big 12, Defensive Lineman of the Year, and First Team All-Big 12. After playing sparingly his first two seasons, he was a starter, his last two at West Virginia, and finished with 10.5 sacks in a very, one very memorable interception in his career. Oh, for sure. Um, and he is a legacy recruit, so his dad, Gary, played for uh, WVU for a few years. Um, I believe he's still on some of the all-time sack lists and he played in the NFL for a while. Um, he's also, I didn't real make this connection, even though they have the same last name. Um, the stills are also cousins with, um, NFL wide receiver, Kenny stills. So I learned that today reading through Wikipedia. So that's pretty cool. Um, you know, very good career, 81 tackles, 23 tackles for a loss, 10 and a half sacks and two forced fumbles for his career. His junior year was Really, really good with 12 tackles for a loss, six sacks, and two forced fumbles. Um, he's also one of those players that 
his stats are muted a little bit too because he played much more inside than um, a lot of the other guys, and he was still putting up really good numbers. And I think that's why he was so respected um, as being named an All-American and Best Defensive Lineman in the Big 12 for his play because he was so disruptive being put in that middle and still putting up, you know, tackles for losses, sacks, forced fumbles, and obviously the memorable pick that you mentioned. Um, He did um, have a little bit of an NFL career this season. He signed um, undrafted free agency deal with the um, Los Angeles, or nope, Las Vegas Raiders. I'll get the right city. <laughs> and then he was cut um, towards the end of this uh, 2021 and then signed to a futures reserve contract by the Chiefs. Um, he didn't play in the playoffs at all, but, you know, he will. It's kind of a developmental contract that he signed. So hopefully um, something comes of that in the future and we get to see him play on Sundays more often. Um, as you said, the career highlight, the diving interception against Kansas in 2020, um, the pass was deflected by, I believe it was Tyke Smith, it was about, I want to say, seven yards down the field. And uh, the ball was up in the air. Stills is running and dives and makes the catch. Um, just absolutely incredible catch, uh, especially from a defensive lineman. I would be impressed if a defensive back made that play. But here's a nearly 300-pound man laying out for that ball. And uh, those are my favorite types of interceptions. Second down and six. Kendrick. The big fella's got stick up on his head. Oh, I love it. He was fully extended. Darius still shows you the athleticism. There's the ball batted up into the air by Tyke Smith and Sills. Full but, but- extension. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that, that's got to be the play everyone thinks of when they hear Darius Stills' name. I mean, he just absolutely laid out for that being a D-tackle. And that's the thing, you know, um, if you look at his career numbers, some people might not think they're they're that great. But you got to remember, he's a defensive tackle. He's not an end. So um, it's, it's pretty impressive he put up the numbers that he did from that position. Um, I, I thought it was pretty interesting. I saw in an interview um, on SI just recently where Darius says he feels he only received an offer from West Virginia because they wanted his brother Dante. So, um, you know, Darius was committed to Rutgers because Rutgers was recruiting him pretty heavy. He committed. And then just a couple of days later, WVU started giving him some attention and he changed. Um, and, and went to West Virginia, thankfully for us at the last minute. But um, yeah, he is kind of undersized, but it's hard to believe that we almost let a guy who whose dad went to WVU, who didn't live far from Morgantown, we almost let him slip through the cracks. Oh, for sure. And, you know, he, he was a hard worker. He was someone who loved WVU, um, but we were late on him. Um, and it was great to have him come here. I mean, and it was kind of easier, I think, to overlook uh, Darius, too, because he wasn't as physically imposing as his brother. I think Darius goes about 5'11", 6' tall, probably about 290 pounds, where, you know, you look at Dante, and Dante's like 6'4", 270 pounds, kind of the prototypical build for your defensive lineman. So 
you know, whenever you're a little bit more on that stocky side, you got to do it with your motor. You got to do it with your hard work. And Darius put in the work and became the D- Big 12 defensive player, the lineman of the year in 2020. He was actually the 2020 preseason Big 12 player of the year, um, which was surprising as me. I know we've had a few of those in the past, but, you know, seeing Darius up there as someone like, like you said, was kind of under-recruited, wasn't even going to come here at first. Um, to see him get that kind of recognition just through hard work and motor um, was just exceptional. Yeah, for sure. Big shout out to Darius Stills. Um, is that it? You got anything yeah. else? Nope. All right. Coming in at 34, Yondi Kajus. Yondi played left tackle for most of his career from 2000. 15 to 2018 he suffered two nasty knee injuries which robbed him about one and a half seasons in college um however this kid had a lot of heart because he came back his junior and senior seasons to earn second team all big 12 as a junior first team all big 12 as a senior and big 12 co-offensive lineman of the year in 2018 he was at the forefront for one of the best West Virginia offenses in recent memory with Will Greer, David Sills. You guys remember the team. So big shout out to Yondi because he, he was a great lineman when he was here. Oh, yeah. And it's hard to find offensive linemen that can start for basically four years. Like you said, he lost about a season and a half due to injury. But he was starting as a redshirt freshman, um, lost almost his entire sophomore year. But. Still, that's a long time for, for an offensive lineman to play, and it goes a long way, I think, for people. Um, he was also named to the second-team All-American team in 2018. Um, so just kind of goes to show you that whenever he was you know, at his peak, he was one of the best offensive linemen, not just in the Big 12, but in the country. Um, in his junior year, he was uh, a part of the offensive line that allowed only 4.1 tackles for a loss a game which was number eight in the nation, number one in the Big 12. Um, They held opponents to 1.5 sacks per game, um, which ranked 25 in the country, number two in the Big 12. And, you know, because of his success at offensive linemen, at offensive line, especially at that left tackle position, a lot of people considered him to be a first or second round draft pick going into the NFL draft. Um, He did slip a lot, mostly due to the injury concerns, which, did plague him the first couple years, ironically, um, in his NFL career. Um, but, you know, it seems like he's making some headway. Um, he was drafted in the third round by the New England Patriots in 2019. Um, played seven games in 2021, started two games, and didn't play the first two years of his career due to injury. He had surgery on his quad, and I think he had another leg injury um, that plagued him. Um, another interesting stat that I found on him is he actually owns – the West Virginia Re- NFL Combine record uh, for 32 reps at 225. Um, so no other West Virginia players ever bench pressed that more times or 225 more times at the NFL Combine, which is very very impressive, um, especially when the guy is that big. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I didn't even know that. Um, yeah, and his backstory. I mean. From all accounts, all the interviews I've seen, I mean, he came from practically nothing to now playing in the NFL on Sundays. And like we said, those two knee knee injuries were early in his career. So it would have been really easy for him to just phone it in and and pick a different career path. But he just stuck with it and got better and better and just is an absolute force. And now he's 
playing for the New England Patriots. So awesome job. Shout out oh, yeah. to Yondi. For sure. And they, they talked to um, a lot of the articles I read about him. We're talking about how he was actually focused on basketball a lot in his uh, early years in high school and, you know, kind of fell into football because of his size. Um, and, you know, while that may not make sense, logically moving from basketball to offensive lineman, that footwork goes a long way and you can kind of see it. You know, he was really, really good in pass protection um, run blocking. He wasn't as powerful because he was a little bit more lighter on his feet, but in pass protection, he was really good at, you know, getting back quick, allowing players to kind of come to him and not letting the pocket collapse. So um, really special. And that's something that, you know, I can really appreciate. We can both really appreciate after the past couple of years we've had, um, with this offensive line that we currently have at West Virginia. So hopefully we can find another Yodney here soon. Yeah, 100%. All right, coming in at 33, Dante Stills, the younger Stills brother, and I believe the only currently active WVU player to crack our list. He has played at West Virginia from 2018 to 2021. And in his four years here, he has totaled 44 tackles for a loss, which I've even seen places have it higher. Um, But most of them said 44 tackles for a loss, 19 sacks, three forced fumbles, and an interception. Dante announced he will be returning for his fifth and final season at West Virginia. And Mountaineer fans couldn't be happier because Dante is an absolute force on that defensive line. Oh, for sure. And, you know, the stats over his career are just really, really show how great he is. I mean, he was third in team sacks his freshman year, and he didn't even start that year. Um, he led the team in sacks and tackles for a loss his sophomore year, um, led the team in tackles for his loss his junior year, led the team in sacks and tackles for a loss this past season, his senior year, uh, freshman All-American, all Big 12 second team in 2019, all Big 12 first team in 2020, PFF All-American, all honorable mention in 2020, all Big 12 first team in 2021. Um, the guy is well decorated. If he was a, a soldier, he would have pins all the way up and down his lapel. Uh, he is really, really talented. And he was a super highly you know, touted guy coming out of high school. And that's why WVU brought in Darius, which is what it sounded like. Um, and you can't blame him because uh, this was a guy that every college in the country wanted. And he ended up coming to WVU and he is making his impact felt, um, you know, he seemed to be the guy that anytime this past season, we needed to make a play. He found a way to get in, get in there and make it. Um, not only is he physically gifted, but he has a really high motor and a love for West Virginia university. So um, just, we're really lucky to have a guy like this on the team and it, you know, you kind of, kind of feel it um, seeing how much he loves it here. Yeah. 100%. And something to look for next season Dante is currently seventh all-time in sacks at WVU and will most certainly finish right around where his dad is at, at number four or three. His dad is currently number three with 26 career sacks, so he might have some family bragging rights by the time next season is over. That would be fun, uh, and that would be. And, you know, hopefully, he can stay healthy and chase that because you know it seems pretty realistic for him to get seven sacks. And that would put him right there. So hopefully he can beat Gary out. Um, the last thing I have on him is the highlight and um, kind of keeping in, uh, you know, the trend I have with the, the big men. It's again, a big man interception uh, against Oklahoma state, which we ended up losing that game. 
Um, he tipped a pass at the line of scrimmage to himself and intercepted it. Um, we were actually at that game and it was, you know, just incredible. I think I was kind of dumbfounded um, seeing that that happened because you just don't see that very often. Someone tipping a pass to themselves and coming down with it, um, especially from the defensive line. So that was my most memorable moment from Dante. <laughs> on second and 13. They set up the screen. It's 10 footsteps. And I think he's got an interception. Dante Stills does it alone. The tip pick. And West Virginia starts in plus territory. Lines up to start this play as the defensive tackle. Now West Virginia is going to run a stunt. He's going to switch with Bartlett. There's Stills as the defensive tackle. Bartlett goes inside. Now he becomes an edge rusher. Just great vision on Spencer Sanders. Get your hand up, big fella. And go make that pick. Yeah, it's always fun to see a defensive lineman get a pick. <laughs> For sure. All right, coming in at 32, Wendell Smallwood. Wendell played at West Virginia from 2013 to 2015 before entering the NFL draft after his junior season. Wendell played a little his freshman year and shared the workload at running back with several different players his sophomore year. However, Wendell Smallwood made his mark in West Virginia history during his junior season, rushing for over 1,500 yards, the fourth highest single season total at West Virginia. He finished his career with over 2,400 yards and 12 touchdowns. He is currently 10th on West Virginia's all-time rushing list. Yes, and Wendell Smallwood is always kind of you know, he's up there with, you know, one of those great what ifs um, because he split time with Russell Shell his sophomore year. He probably very easily probably should have had that because Russell wasn't necessarily the most efficient back. And if he would have came back his senior year, I mean, you, we, you look at the, the record books, like you said, 10th most rushing yards all time at WVU after one really great season, fourth most rushing yards in a single season, like you said, ninth all time in all purpose yardage at WVU, 10th in single-season all-purpose yardage at WVU of all time. Um, just absolutely incredible. He was a second-team All-Big 12 after his junior year, and that junior year was just absolutely insane. Like you said, 1,500 yards rushing, 160 yards receiving, nine touchdowns, which is a little light, but he averaged 6.4 yards per carry. So he was averaging two-thirds of a first down every time he touched the ball, which is absolutely crazy. Um, he led the team in touchdowns. Um, twice as many scrimmage yards than any other Mountaineer. The next closest was Shelton Gibson with 887 that year. Um, he also played some time at kick returner. So, I mean, it was just absolutely crazy. And these weren't, these weren't games where we were like, like Charles Sims, where we were losing a lot of games. We actually went eight and five that year. So we had a pretty solid season with him at running back. And again, you know, he wasn't someone who was physically imposing. I think he was like, what, five ten, five eleven, about, 200 pounds. He wasn't someone who was super fast. Um, he was just someone who's a really smart runner. He was super light on his feet. It's just seemed like he was kind of floating out there. Really great vision. And um, yeah, I mean, I feel like he's one of the more underrated running backs we've had. Oh yeah. I agree with you. I, I loved it when Wendell was um, 
at WVU. I mean, he even contributed pretty well for a freshman. And um, yeah, like you said, split time with Shell and Dreamius Smith that sophomore year. So who knows? I mean, he could have really stacked up um, some pretty high numbers if he would have just got the ball even more. But he was great that junior year. He played in the pros for several years and even earned a Super Bowl with the Philadelphia Eagles. So, I mean, the kid's just successful wherever he goes. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. Like you said, uh, fifth round draft pick by the Eagles. Um, six seasons in the NFL. I think he's still kicking somewhere. I think he played for Washington, um, whatever they're called nowadays, um, this past season. <laughs> he did play for the Steelers um, one season as a backup, but he has 12 starts. He's played in 56 games in the pros. He's accumulated 956 yards rushing, 474 yards receiving, seven total offensive touchdowns. He's also spent time as a kick returner professionally and has one kick return touchdown um, his rookie year. So um, he's also someone it seems like the NFL likes having around as well. So um, must just be a really great guy, really great locker room guy, and really smart, which you can kind of tell with the way he uh, he ran. Yeah, 100%. Um, you got a memorable play for window? I do. Um, so, you know, for a lot of offensive players, I always kind of try to find the most impressive run that they have. But kind of like what I was talking about, he wasn't super fast, so he didn't have a ton of really memorable ones. Um, long ones. Um, he did have one against Kansas and it was Kansas. So I was like, that's not really that memorable. Um, so I found a really kind of clutch play that he made um, in the cactus bowl against Arizona state. It was um, third and 22 West Virginia was down six with about, um, I think it was two minutes, 38 seconds left. And he ran 20. It was a running play they called and he ran 24 yards to get the first down, put WVU in the red zone which led to a Skylar Howard touchdown a couple plays later to David Stills. Um, but it's just crazy that it was third and 22, and he got the first down from that. Um, just absolutely incredible. And I think we ended up winning that game, what, 43-42. So it was a really big play. Um, without that, we probably wouldn't have won. Third down and 22. We'll go with Smallwood. Cuts it back. Big hole. Wendell Smallwood. First down at the 15-yard line. He picks up 24. Yeah, that was a very memorable game. Defense was optional that game. Um, I'm sure we'll dive into it further with some of the other guys we're, uh, we're going to have in the next couple of weeks. Um, coming in at number 31, Julian Miller. Julian played at West Virginia from 2008 to 2011. He finished his career with 42 and a half tackles for a loss, which once again, I've seen different websites have that stat higher, but um, that seemed to be the most consistent one. And he had 27 and a half sacks. His 27 and a half career sacks is the second most in WVU's history. And his two nine-sack seasons um, that he earned as a sophomore and junior are tied for the ninth best in a single season at WVU. Also, his four sacks in a single game versus Pitt in 2011 is tied for the most in a single game ever at WVU. So, you know, Julian played with some very good defensive players at West Virginia, like Bruce Irvin, among others. But Mountaineer fans should really appreciate and take notice of what a great player Julian was when he was at West Virginia. According to WVUStats.com, he is the all-time leader 
and tackles for a loss. They credit him with 49. So shout out to Julian Miller. Wow. Yeah. The, he's, I mean, he has to be one of the most underrated play, defensive players because, you know, before I started, you know, we started making this list, he wasn't someone that came, came to mind, but, you know, going through all the stats and the year, year by year things, you know, his name just pops out every year. And that sophomore and junior year was just absolutely incredible because his stats were almost identical. And you lo- have to love that consistency. Um, his sophomore and junior years, he both, he had 50 plus tackles both years for exactly 14 tackles for a loss both years, exactly nine sacks both years, exactly three pass deflections each years, and exactly one forced fumble both years. So just that, that stat alone kind of, you know, is crazy to me. But he's also putting up those numbers with Bruce Irvin on the team, um, and he finishes with all those sacks over top. I think he finished over top Bruce Irvin in career sacks because um, Bruce was only there two years. But still, I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean – Julian was just one of those guys that I think gets overlooked a lot. Um, he he did get some nice accolades. He was second team all big T, all big East in 2009, first team all big T, big East in 2010, second team all big East in 2011. He also won the Gridiron Gladiator Award at WVU. Um, so you know definitely got some all big East honors, but you know he's definitely someone who I felt like probably should have gotten more. Um, the one thing I thought was interesting too was. His senior year, whenever he got the second team All Big East, he was behind. Um, I'm trying to think of all the names now. It was uh, Wolf, who played for Cincinnati, Aaron Donald, and um, there's one other guy who, whose name I'm blanking on now, who was on the first team All Big East team. And I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> the defensive line in the Big East that year was loaded. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I said, he he played with some big names. So, um, you know, people kind of sleep on him. But then, yeah, everything we just read off, like he he's in the top 10 of just every like important defensive line category of all time, single game, single season. He, he was just a stud all four years. He was at WVU. And uh, yeah, like we said, he's second all time in sacks. At West Virginia, we just talked about Dante Stills. If Dante has a solid year and gets like 10 sacks, he'll actually move past Miller. Um, no one will move past Curtis, I don't think, though. Curtis is the all-time leader with 34 and a half sacks. So, um, But yeah, definitely something to shoot for for Dante Stills this upcoming year. He might be the, the second biggest uh, career sack total at West Virginia. Oh, for sure. And, you know, the one thing that I thought was interesting, too, is like Julian Miller really didn't get a shot at the NFL either. I mean, he signed with an undrafted free agent for the Bengals, only lasted there for a year, played in the CFL for one year with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, didn't last there, Um, played two years in arena football with the Utah Blaze and Cleveland Gladiators, Um, then kind of hung up the cleats after that. Um, And then that kind of brings us back, which... Um, this was not planned at all, but uh, he actually coached Dante and Darius Stills at WVU as a defensive graduate assistant um, before now getting an assistant head coach job right down the road from me and Tyler at West West Liberty University. Um, so, you know, it seems like he's found his calling as a coach, and it's really interesting how this all ties together with Dante Darius, who was coached by one of the all-time great pass rushers at WVU who happened to be the son of one of the all sons of one of the all time great pass rushers at WVU. Um, it's weird how things like that work out. So uh, Julian Miller, 
definitely one of the all-time greats. And um, for my highlight moment for him, it's more of a highlight game just because of that four sack night against Pitt. Um, you know, you set a record in, in, in a game, um, you know, that's memorable in itself. Especially oh, against Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Anytime you have a big game against Pitt, WV fans are going to remember that. And hopefully, um, hopefully that's a sign of what's going to come next year when Backyard Brawl comes back. Oh, yes. Sinceri takes the snap out of his own end zone. He pumps. He's in trouble. And they're after him. They tackle him at the four-yard line. Second and five. Snap back to Sinceri. He keeps it. Running to his left. Gets dragged down from behind. Julian Miller stops him. No gain on the play. Snap is back. Tino drops. Steps up. He's sacked by Julian Miller. That is his fourth sack of the night for Julian Miller. Can't wait. All right, guys. That is it for us we really appreciate you guys listening this was a fun podcast lots of fun topics to discuss um as always please follow us so that you know when we drop new podcasts uh we do them every week uh tuesday night and thank you so much for the support the only thing that we want from you guys is more comments more communication let us know what you like about the podcast let us know um, what you don't like, how, how can we improve? Cause we're always trying to get better at this, but, um, thanks for listening. It's a lot of fun. Definitely. Yeah. Thanks everyone. And, uh, we hope to hear more from you and, um, we hope you like the list so far. And if you don't feel free to let us know who you would put in, who we left off and, uh, who you're waiting to see most importantly. Yeah, for sure. See you guys.